Have you ever wondered whether the pastor is preaching at you? I mean, really, have you? Uh, I, I, as I consider that subject, I, I remember back now decades ago, some of you remember sitting under the preaching of Phil Schuler, evangelist who came to this church many times and preached, and I had this picture of him just indelibly seared in my mind. He would be standing, I think over here, as people came into the service, and he would just be like this. He would just be watching. And as I understood it, he was determining what exactly he wanted to preach that evening. Um, Dr. Schuler was a man who, many years in the ministry as an itinerant evangelist, I can't tell you how many messages he had in there already prepared to go, and he was just going to see who showed up before maybe he selected exactly which one he was going to preach. Well, I can tell you I pick my messages far more, far before I know who's going to be there, and I can assure you if you think that I'm preaching at you, it's very unlikely that you are in my mind, though maybe the Holy Spirit has something in any event if you're really wondering whether I am preaching at you. And I start there because in this sermon that we read in Luke, sorry, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus was preaching at folks. And you know even more than that? They knew it. I'll prove it to you. Mark chapter 12. Look with me at verse 12, will you? If you have your Bibles, I invite you, as I do every week, to have them open so that you can be assured that what I'm telling you is not my word, but it's God's word. Let's make sure that we are looking at the ultimate source of authority here together, and it's not me. Verse 12. After Jesus gets done with this sermon, they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people. Look at this. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. They knew he was preaching at them. He, they knew that they were the subjects of exactly what he was saying. Now when we come to the word of God together, as we, I hope, have been well-trained here, we have to look at the context and we have to look at what it meant to the people who first heard it. And in this case, these were these individuals in the first century sitting right in front of Jesus. You say, well, who are these? Well, look with me at verse 1 of chapter 12. And he began to speak unto whom? Them. I'm not going to take you fully back to English class. But what part of speech, what, what use is the word them? What do we call that? It's a pronoun. A pronoun refers back to something else. So friends, we can't start this sermon at the chapter divide. We've got to figure out who them is. By the way, did you know this chapter divides aren't inspired? Chapter divides aren't inspired. There's actually no chapter divides in the original Greek. They didn't say, Mark didn't say, okay, now we're moving on to chapter 12 in our text. No, they, they put them there 
They're, they're not inspired. In fact, I remember once there was a scripture reading. You may remember my father would always preach from a particular passage in last week's Bible reading. And this one was Acts 24 or 25 when Paul is getting up to speak to the people. And the chapter literally ends with him getting up and saying, And Paul got up and beckoned with his hand, speaking in the Hebrew tongue, and saying, Chapter ends. And I remember Raleigh Whitcomb reading the scripture that, that day, and it ended, he, he literally, the Bible reading ended at saying, comma. And being of fairly quick wit, Raleigh said, you'll have to come next week to figure out what he said. Uh, I, I'll, never forget, uh, I'll never forget that one. We have to go back before the chapter divide. What were we talking about last week? Who, were, who was coming to Jesus and challenging him. Well, look back at chapter 11 and 20, verse 27. And they, that's Jesus' disciples, come again to Jerusalem, and as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now we see this back and forth between Jesus and them. They ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Cleaning out the temple, teaching authoritatively in the temple. Who gave you the right to do this? And Jesus asks them a question. He says, well, I'll tell you one, I'll ask you one thing first. Where was the baptism of John coming from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And they said, well, wait a second. If, it's, if we say it was from heaven, he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him then? And if we say it was just from men, it was just from people, it, it wasn't from God, he's, we're scared of the people. They all believed that John the Baptist was a prophet. We might get in trouble with them, so they take the coward's way out. They say, we're not going to tell you. We, we can't tell you by what, why he, or from whence that baptism came. And Jesus looks at them, and he says, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. He made the message loud and clear. If you're not going to accept that John the Baptist came from God, then you're not going to accept my message that is following in the exact same footsteps as John. And now, chapter 12 starts. And he began to speak unto them by parables. Don't forget that there's not a gap between the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. Jesus launches right into a sermon. He says, now guys... You want to hear a little more about authority? I've got a story for you. And the story that he is going to tell them is one that they knew full well he was preaching to them. It was a story that I'm going to title this morning, The Last Messenger. The Last Messenger. Let's dive into this story together. Understand what the story is understand what it had to say to the people that Jesus was preaching to in the first century. They knew it was for them. And then let's understand the message that it has for us today. I'm going to start, first of all, by talking about what we'll call the parable. That's what this story is. It's a parable. It is, as we learned earlier when we were looking at parables in Mark, it's simply a story that is intended to communicate truth. 
And in many cases, when we learned about Jesus' use of parables, we actually saw that those parables were intended to be veiled. In other words, the people who would listen to them wouldn't understand what they were talking about. And even the disciples, Jesus' disciples didn't understand in most cases what they meant. But do you know what it was? It was an invitation from Jesus. I'm going to tell you a story that none of you understand. And then Jesus just sat down. And his disciples took the invitation to come to him and say, Jesus, what did you mean by that? And he said, oh, I'll tell you. But there are others who didn't care to know. They heard the parable. Their eyes were darkened to its meaning. And they said, oh, along with our business. And it only further blinded them. It only further confirmed their unbelief, their lack of interest in the true spiritual message that Jesus had. Do you see that this parable is the exact opposite? This parable is not veiled. This parable is wide open on its face. They got it. They knew it. They understood what he was saying. So notice, first of all, here in this parable, let's just work through this very simply. It's a very simple story. Notice verse 1. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it. That's a wall. And digged a place for the wine vat. Now, what was that? That was the place where you would take the the grapes from the vine, you would stomp them out, you would crush the grapes, and you would collect the juice. And that grape juice would be turned into wine. And notice as he digs a place for this wine vat, and he built a tower. This was a secure, this was a choice, a special resource for the owner. Now, we don't live in an in agrarian society, a society that is built around, its economy is built around farming. Some of you may have grown up on farms. We have farms still that dot our landscape, but we are not what you would call an agrarian or an agricultural society in the same way. So, I don't know whether you can come into this story in the same way. Maybe if Jesus had been here in the 21st century, he would have said something like this. A guy, he, he built a restaurant and he decorated it beautifully and he developed an exquisite menu and he invested millions of dollars in this restaurant. And then do you know what he did? He contracted it out to a subleaser. He contracted it out for someone to run it, a general manager and a chef and his employees, and they were now his employees operating his restaurant. That's the idea here. A guy owns a piece of land with vines on it. He, it the, the fruit is rightfully his. He leases it out, and where does he go? He let it out to husbandmen, that's gardeners, and he went into a far country. So this guy founds the vineyard. He opens the restaurant, if you will. 
he leaves it to people who are going to take care of it, and he goes into a far country. And at the season, notice verse 2, at the right season, the harvest season, he sent to the husbandmen, to these vine dressers, a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. Now, you've got to notice this. This is a shocking story. The people of Jesus' day would have been very familiar with rich people who owned vineyards and leased them out to people to run them. This was a common thing in Jesus' day as I understand it. They would have gotten it. What was shocking was that when the owner sent a servant back saying, hey, give, give me my cut, it's my land, that they would have treated him like this. They beat him. And notice that they sent him away empty. They sent him away with nothing that was rightfully the owner's. It would be like the owner of the restaurant coming up to the, to the teller at the restaurant and saying, okay, I, I need my receipts from today. I need my cut of the people who came in. And they beat the guy up and kicked him out of the restaurant and said, you don't take a dollar back. Wow. But that's not the only shocking thing. Notice what else is shocking. Verse 4, And again he sent unto them another servant. Well, that's surprising. You would have thought that once would have been enough for this owner to come storming back into town and say, You guys are done. This is my vineyard. This is my restaurant. Oh, no. Verse 4, He sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones. They picked up rocks and started pelting the guy with rocks and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. That idea of being shamefully handled is this. They humiliated him. They embarrassed him. They didn't just injure him. They disgraced him publicly and sent him away. Now again, these Jews of this first century must just have been sitting there looking at the... Come on. Come on. Verse 5, And again he sent another, and him they killed. Notice the violence just ratcheting it up, from beating him to pelting him with rocks and wounding him and disgracing him and then killing him. And many others, beating some and killing some. But friends, we haven't gotten to the most shocking part. Verse 6, Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them. Now this would have been the part where everyone in the audience would have been hanging on Jesus' words. And when Jesus said, and he had one son, his well-beloved, everyone would have said, oh no. We know where this is going. Remember watching a very moving film uh, with uh, Tabitha and her family. It was called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. I don't know if you've ever heard or seen that film. It is a story about the Holocaust and the leader of the Holocaust, of, of, the, of a particular concentration camp. It's a, a story of him and his family and his son is, becomes friends with a boy in striped pajamas on the other side of the fence. You can imagine this is one of the Jewish 
children who are there. And you reach, as you draw toward the ultimate conclusion of the film, you see this boy making plans, the son of the leader of the concentration camp, making plans to go tunnel under the fence and become a boy in striped pajamas himself, not having any idea of what it is. And you just begin to develop this pit in your stomach, and you say, oh, no, oh, no. And I won't spoil it for you, but it ends in, in remarkably poignant fashion. And here they would have said, oh, no, his son, no. And sure enough, look what happens. He sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, this is the heir. They knew it was the son. And they said, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. Scalders tell us that in that day there was a law that if, if a property went unclaimed for three years, you, if you had possession of it, you could take it. And perhaps they thought, well, if we kill this guy, we have a chance for this vineyard to simply become ours. And they took him, verse 8, and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Don't miss that. They cast him out of the vineyard. Think this picture. Not only do they kill the well-beloved son, they cast his body over the wall, lifeless, dead. Now at this point, Jesus, as a wonderful storyteller, would have had his audience completely in his hand. They would have said, no way. No way. They could not have been that cruel. He could not have been that patient. And this could not have such a cruel, heartbreaking end that the well-beloved son dies. And you know what happens? Notice what Jesus says. Look at how he brings it home. Verse 9, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? You know, friends, if you compare this to Matthew's account, Matthew gives us one additional detail. Do you know who first answered that question? It wasn't Jesus. It was the people he was telling the story to. Listen to these words. Matthew 21 and verse 41. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. He will miserably destroy those wicked men. I mean, they were worked up like David was worked up when, when he was told the story by Nathan. Nathan said, you are the man. Thou art the man. He brought it home. And notice what Jesus says here in Mark's account. He says, he will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. Jesus confirmed what they said. He said, what are they going to do? They said, he's going to do this. And Jesus looked at him and he said, yep. He's going to do exactly that. That's a story. That's a parable. But what we need to see here is not only is there a parable, it's what I'm going to call is a panorama. Now, we can use two points here. We can use two words to describe what's going on. A panorama and a prophecy. You say, what's a panorama? If you take out your phone, you have a panoramic ability to take pictures maybe on your phone. A panorama is something that is just a big, wide view. It's stepping way back and looking at the whole big picture. Do you know what this story is? It's a panorama of the history of Israel as God's chosen people. Do you know they would have known this entirely? 
the first thing they would have known is this is a story about God's investment in his chosen people. You say, how do you know that? Because one of the most prominent stories among the Old Testament prophets was from Isaiah chapter 5. We won't turn there, but I'll leave it for you to go this afternoon or some other time and take a look at it yourself. Isaiah chapter 5 and beginning in verse 1. I'll just read a snippet of it. God says through his prophet Isaiah, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it, put up a wall, and gathered up the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the middle of it, and also made a wine press therein. Do you notice any similarities? Jesus is almost quoting Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. They would have known this. This was one of the most famous pictures in the Old Testament prophets. They knew who he was talking about. And listen to how that parable in Isaiah 5 continues. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Now don't miss that. He's saying it brought forth sour, inedible fruit, and he could eat none of it. So into this picture, Jesus is reminding his listeners, by the way, I'm talking about you. See, the picture's pretty easy of Jesus' parable, isn't it? Who's the owner? God. Who's the vineyard? God's chosen kingdom people. Now, don't miss this. There are some people who just immediately say, this is the nation of Israel. Yes, but only in the sense that it's God's kingdom people, his chosen people, his special people for himself, through whom the covenants of God came, to whom the word of God came. This is God's people. Who are the servants? Who are the husbandmen, I should say, the vine dressers who were left to take care of it? These were Israel's rulers. They're kings. They're religious rulers. Friends, the same people that Jesus is talking to here. They're scribes. They're high priests. They're Sanhedrin council. Who are the servants who are sent to say, here, give me the fruit from my vineyard. Give me the worship that I am owed. Give me the service that I am due, God says, as the owner. They are the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament who came to speak the message of God over and over. And what is this panorama reminding these people of? You have rejected the prophets of God over and over and over again. We just read of Isaiah. Tradition tells us that Isaiah was sawed in half to kill him. The next prophet of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, was cast in prison, was shamefully treated, was consistently rejected, his word being disbelieved. 
Second Chronicles 24 tells us of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, who got up to preach in the word of the Lord, and he was killed. They stoned him to death. And from Israel's first prophet to Mo- Moses, to Israel's last Old Testament prophet. Who was Israel's last Old Testament prophet? Who was it? It actually wasn't Malachi. It was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was their last. I don't mean Old Testament in subject. I mean, I, I don't mean Old Testament in time. I mean Old Testament in subject matter. He was coming in as the final prophet in God's Old Testament period saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. The king, the Messiah, is now approaching. Be ready. And do you know what they did to him? Israel's king, King Herod, killed him. Chopped his head off. Jesus is saying to them, you have rejected God's messengers. Sobering, sobering words. Think about how this ties back in to the authority that they were challenging him with. By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus is again saying to them, you want to talk about authority? How have you been listening to God's authority over the Old Testament period? And they would have had to have it hit home to them. We've been killing them. We've been beating them. We've been rejecting them. But notice this is not just panorama. But in the second point, I I include prophecy. Because notice it's a prophecy about what's going to happen that week. Who's the son? Who's the well-beloved son? You know the answer. It's Jesus. He's speaking of himself. Don't let any modern liberal scholar tell you Jesus didn't know he was the son of God. He didn't know he was the Messiah. Those claims were created for him after his death. No, friend, in this parable it's inescapable. He knew he was the son and he was saying, I am the well-beloved son. This word for well-beloved is the same one that God speaks to him at his baptism. You are my well-beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. Same word that God uses for him at the transfiguration. You are my well-beloved son. This is my well-beloved son. And now Jesus is prophesying that as he comes as God's son to his chosen kingdom people, he will be killed. And his lifeless body will be thrown over the wall of the vineyard as an ultimate shaking of their fist against the authority of God, the owner of the vineyard. Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew that his, days, his life had only days remaining. And at this point, he was looking at his ultimate murderers right in the eye and saying, I know exactly what you're going to do. It's prophecy. It's panorama. But ultimately notice what he is driving home to these people above all else. Thirdly, their peril. Their peril. To be in peril is to be in great danger. And these people were in the greatest of danger that Jesus in his love and Jesus in his patience and Jesus in his mercy is warning them of. They knew he was talking about them. They knew he was communicating what God's message was. What was their peril? 
Will you go back with me in the story to this word that I want you to underline and highlight and circle in your Bibles? We can't understand what Jesus is really saying until we get this word. Notice with me verse 6. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also. What's the last, what's the next word? He sent him also last. Last. He sent him one servant, they beat him. He sent him another servant. They wounded him and embarrassed him. He sent him another servant. He killed him. He kept on sending messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger. And finally God says, I have only one more. I've got the last one. I have my final messenger. My son. And friends, the most sobering thing about the peril these religious leaders of, Jew, of Judaism were in was that this was God's final messenger and there would be no others. None. The last one. And you know, friends, when they took that final messenger, Jesus the Messiah, and they shouted, crucify him, crucify him, and they rejected him to hang up on a cross and die outside the gate, casting him over the wall. They were taking God's final messenger and rejecting him conclusively. You know what Jesus said to them? His peril, his warning for them was this. He will come and destroy the husbandmen, the religious leaders, and will give the vineyard unto others. Do you know what Matthew 21 records? Matthew 21 says that when Jesus, um, that when Jesus said this, as Matthew 21 says, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. The Luke account tells us that they response, their response was, God forbid. They knew what he was saying. They knew what he was prophesying about them. But do you know what's so, what's so terrifying about this, friends? What's so difficult for us to grapple with is that this was God's final messenger for them. Do you know within the generation that Jesus spoke these words, about 40 years or so after he spoke these words, in A.D. 70, the Romans came upon the city of Jerusalem and surrounded it. They put an awful, awful siege on it. Reports say that parents were eating their children in this siege. Dead bodies lining up, being stacked up against the wall. The Romans came swarming into the city. They took the temple of God that was the pride of the Israelite people and knocked it down so there wasn't one stone on top of another. Friends, there has never been another temple built from that day. There has never been another sacrifice that has been offered. There has never been another high priest of the Jewish faith standing over the sacrifices of the Old Testament. God's judgment against those husbandmen was to say, you will never steward my kingdom people again. 
you will never have a place of leadership over my chosen people ever again because you rejected my final messenger, therefore you cannot accept my final message. If you reject the final messenger, you cannot hear, you cannot participate in my final message. And what is the final message? that God has sent not only to the Jewish people, but His final message that He has sent to mankind. Will you keep looking with me? Look with me at verse 10. Jesus slightly tweaks the picture now. He says, And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner, the head cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting one of the great messianic psalms. Psalm 118. You can go read that too this afternoon. If you want to see some more context. In Psalm 118, the people of Israel had just been quoting that. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, they said on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, save now! Save now! And now Jesus, only a few days later, is quoting again from Psalm 118 and says, do you know what the testimony of the Messiah is? That he will be rejected by the builders. You say, I'm not sure I get the picture. Jerusalem would have known all about limestone quarries where stone was cut out to make beautiful limestone buildings, they would have recognized the picture. The architects, the master builders, see a stone that's cut out, and they look at it, and they study it, and they say, that's not the one. That's no good. Send that one back. We need another stone. And do you know what Jesus is saying to them? And God's prophecy to his people is there's going to be a stone that all the master builders, all the architects, who are those? The religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the rulers of the people, they rejected Jesus of Nazareth. They said that stone's not the one that we're going to build on. And they didn't realize that all the while God was making it the cornerstone. What's the cornerstone? You could probably go outside this church and find a cornerstone. Do you know what a cornerstone does? It holds together two rows. It's the stone right at the corner that is connecting two rows of stones on which the whole building stands up. Do you know what a cornerstone does? It brings two things together. And what a wonderful picture of Jesus. Do you know who he brought together? He brought together God and man. He was fully God and fully man. He's the chief cornerstone. Do you know who else he brought together? He brought together Jew and Gentile. He brought them together. He's the chief cornerstone. Do you know what he brought together? He brought together life and death. In his death, we have life. We die with him. We live with him. He is the chief cornerstone. And these people who were rejecting God's final messenger, their ears were entirely closed to God's final message. Will you turn with me just very briefly as we close here to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you go from Mark, you just need to go by Luke and John. And then you're into Acts. Notice how Peter 
applied this same idea to the Jews and the rulers of his day. In Acts chapter 4 and verse number 10, Peter and John have just healed by the power of the risen Christ a paralyzed man. And now everyone's wondering how this great miracle was done. Listen to what Peter says in verse 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Pause there for just a moment. When did Jesus become the chief cornerstone? When was this the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes when God raised him from the dead? He made clear this is my chief cornerstone, bringing together God and man. Notice what he says back to verse number 10. Whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Now look at verse 11. This is the stone which was set at naught of who? Of you builders. Of you of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see, to the Jewish rulers of that day, they re rejected God's final messenger, and therefore their ears were closed to God's final message. But friends, this is where this applies to you. Will you allow me to preach at you for just one moment? God has sent his final messenger. The last one. For all of humanity. For all of time. Hebrews 1 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's. Do you know what is the mark of every false religion that has come after this day? They say there's another messenger. The Mormons who work so hard to convince us that they're really Christians, just like us, friends, on the authority of the Word of God, they are not. They have another messenger named Joseph Smith. No, Jesus told us there was only one more, and it was him, Islam. Our Muslim friends and neighbors all around us, oh, they say Jesus was a prophet, but they say there was another one to come. His name was Muhammad. You follow him. No, friends. God said there's one last one. He is my well-beloved son, and he is my final word to the entire world. Friends, just as Peter said in Acts chapter 4, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men. None other. Whereby we must be saved. You say, how, how do I be saved today? It matters this, friends. What have you done with the chief cornerstone? There's only one thing to do on a chief cornerstone. It's to build on it. It's to rest on it. It's to put all your weight on it and to accept God's last messenger and to listen to his last message is to stand on nothing less, as we sang this morning, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The solid rock is Jesus Christ 
What that means is having no other hope in life and in death than in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. That means placing all your faith, all your trust in who Jesus is. That you have put all your eggs, if you will, in the Jesus basket. You are placing all your security in him and in him alone for your eternal life. Friends, have you rested on that chief cornerstone? Have you embraced God's final messenger? Have you opened your ears to the last message? My prayer for you, for all of us today, that we will hear and accept the final messenger for ourselves.